The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. An increasing number of people are realizing that they will never be innocent enough to have a home. And no one ever says, I want a prison. They will never be innocent enough to have health care. They will never be innocent enough to breathe clean air. I mean, the city manager might say, we want a prison, but individuals, no one ever says it. Ways in which abolition confronts that idea of innocence as a barrier to entry for life is resonating. Tune into the news for 10 minutes and you may well learn that society at large has one fundamental problem the criminal, to which there is one essential solution. The prison, the lodestar of all social order, the thin blue line that separates us from carnage and disaster. But as multiple overlapping crises expose the many fault lines and injustices of our society, those fictions might be straining at the seams. Cedric Robinson once wrote in his book Black Marxism, A civilization maddened by its own perverse assumptions and contradictions is loose in the world. Critical geography helps us take a closer look at those contradictions. How prisons, policing and now platforms are drafted in to do the dirty work of racial capitalism, managing surplus populations, ensuring the smooth operation of profit and doling out violence and abandonment wherever violence or abandonment might be needed. It also helps us begin to imagine new places of liberation, begin to reorganise the ways we live together. Abolition, in the words of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, is a plot in which the arc of change is always going resolutely towards freedom. I talked to Ruthie and to Dahlia Gabriel about crisis management, class war and the racial state. Dahlia Gabriel is a writer, broadcaster and academic at the London School of Economics. Her works include Decolonizing the University and Empire's Endgame, Racism and the British State. She's also a host of Navarra Live at Navarra Media. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore is the Director for the Centre of Place, Culture and Politics and Professor of Geography in Earth and Environmental Sciences at the City University of New York. Her works include The Golden Gulag and Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation. Ruthie, Dahlia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here and it's lovely to meet the two of you. So we're talking about racial capitalism through the lens of the prison and the platform relative to your respective areas of work. And critical geography equips us with the tools to see the operation of power and maybe even to change it, to change these fundamental violence of the ways in which we relate to one another, relate to the world around us. But I just want to kind of, before we really dive in, just lay some groundwork here. So I would love to know from you, Ruthie, like how you would unpack that phrase, that term racialization. What processes is that word racialization pointing at? Okay, that's a great question to start with. And it's particularly good because it's a word I don't use very frequently. Um, I came to it through the amazing work of my friend and sometimes mentor, David Theo Goldberg, And I think he developed the word so that we could understand in the front of our minds analytically that race isn't an objective, existential, 
category that everybody just inhabits passively from birth, that there are social and economic and political processes that resolve as and in different places that give meaning to certain kinds of differences as the work of increasing the vulnerability of differentiation shapes, for example, racial capitalism. So when you say racial capitalism, that's not just a capitalist system where racism happens to exist. So what is the link that you're talking about there between racism and capitalism? Even separating those out sometimes feels like a very arbitrary thing to do. You've said it perfectly, better than I can. Separating out racism and capitalism is an arbitrary thing to do. And yet, many of us have been taught over the generations to imagine that they are separate rather than look squarely at the fact that capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines inequality. And that, to take this a step further, Racism does not, in in my reckoning, and I'll be interested to hear what Dahlia has to say, but racism isn't the same as colorism or continent of originism or many of the other things that many people, meaning well sometimes, reduce racism to. So I picked up racial capitalism from reading and learning with my great mentor and dear friend, the late, great Cedric Robinson, who wrote about it actually quite briefly in his fantastic book, Black Marxism, which was part of a trilogy, the first volume of a trilogy he wrote. The other two are The Anthropology of Marxism and Black Social Movements. We know now, and many people knew all along, that the term originated or seems to have originated in radical anti-apartheid working class union organizers and others in Southern and particularly South Africa, and particularly Neville Alexander, another late great thinker and freedom fighter, did a lot of work to develop the concept. There are people now, today, practically even as we speak, who are trying to pull together these various strands of thought. And a book is forthcoming from Pluto Press that will contain essays on this topic that I think will be really useful for a lot of people. So Dahlia, you've talked about race, racialization through the framework of infrastructure, talking about race as a kind of fundamental part of the infrastructure of our economy along the lines of bridges and roads and schools and hospitals and that kind of thing. I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, I think that the idea of racialization as being a way for us to situate process at the heart of how we talk about these things, to not think of race as a biological property or a cultural property that we have and that is fixed to us, but rather as something that happens to us or a process in which we are kind of enveloped in different ways at different times and places um, is incredibly important. And I think, and I completely agree that that is what the work of a term like racialization does. I think for me, the usefulness of a term 
uh, like racial capitalism is to essentially give us the tools to think about how social differentiation and class composition happen through and alongside one another and how these are very integral processes into, you know, shaping the kind of inequalities and exploitation that we see today. I often think of racialization as like a a resource and an organizing principle in the same way that, you know, you can think of oil as a central resource of capitalism. I feel like racialization can almost operate in that it's this kind of endless, often material resource from which capitalism can draw the tools from which it is able to to reproduce itself. And I think what I'm really interested in is, you know, we've 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 typically narrativized the movement of racialization as being from, okay, well, we have this kind of scientific racism that that, you know, divides looks at this through the lens of biological markers and, you know, separates people and and attaches particular meaning to those biological markers or visual markers. And then you have this kind of more cultural racism where cultural terms, religion, etc., are used as proxies for talking about racialized differences. I'm interested in now how that can surface in kind of data-driven systems where the kind of the visual and the embodied marker kind of is at least alleged to have become subordinate. And so I'm kind of interested in how racialization as a tool through which capitalism reproduces itself surfaces differently, but also in ways that are quite consistent to other historical forms of racialization in, you know, the increasing algorithmic and data-driven governance of so many different spheres of our life, you know, labor, housing, Uh, welfare services, the border, but also whilst not decoupling the data-driven and the algorithmic from the human, which is still always so present in those systems. I think you've both talked in really fascinating, compelling ways about that essential fluidity in some ways of race as a tool of governance, that states use it and also non-state actors use it in different ways in kind of responses to crisis and to resolve the different kind of contradictions that crisis throws up. I would love to ask you about how the platform comes along as partly, at least, a response to conjunctural economic crisis. Yeah, so I mean, the the 2008 financial crisis was really a a central moment in which, you know, the platform fix kind of emerges as this thing that is not only seen to be very appealing to governments, to regulators, to venture capitalists and all the various flows of financial capitalism, but also to everyday people. It's seen as, you know, we have these spectacular failures of these institutions, you know, the state, big financial institutions to protect the livelihoods of people as they might have expected, or at least some people might have expected. And then people turn to these kind of forms of, you know, lean platforms as a form of both providing economic economic opportunity, but also being touted by a lot of urban planners as being a fix to, you know, the, the financial crisis in varying ways. It becomes very popular amongst regulators and city planners who, you know, are working with these hamstrung austerity budgets. And typically, the people who have had to turn to these deeply exploitative models 
of platform labour, which essentially involve the carving out of those workers from what we may consider to be, you know, the standard employment contract. And these are always workers who have had very contradictory and ambivalent relationships to this category. It's simply a way of reaffirming the carving out of those workers, which are typically often racialized migrant workers um, from, from those norms. And so what we see is this kind of platform fix and response to crisis that both while claiming to be a kind of techno fix to a lot of the underemployment and unemployment and forms of abandonment that the crisis conferred, actually re-entrenches a lot of those exclusions and forms of differentiation, particularly within, you know, the world of work and the world of labour. There's this huge anxiety, it seems, on the part of uh, many governments, many policymakers about this spectre of the surplus population, right? This almost boogeyman of the unemployed, the masses, right? And there's some kinds of similarities or echoing or enmeshment between these different kinds of fixes that people propose, that people put in place to, quote unquote, deal with the kind of people who are kicked out of what is supposed to be the social contract, right? Or obviously that social contract is applicable to a small and vanishingly, uh, increasingly small number of people. Ruthie, I would love to ask you a little bit more kind of bouncing off this idea of the surplus, perhaps. You've written about the prison or the cage really as being put forward as a one-stop shop massive solution to a bunch of problems and I'd love to get inside the the kind of mind of carceral logic a bit and how does carceral logic conceive of the problems that it is supposed to be solving? That's great and I want to sort of pick up uh, from a a point that that Dolly was made making about platforms as a fix and weave that word fix into my answer. So for me, and you know, I've written about this in now both of my books uh, in various ways, um, prison isn't the fix, it's a partial fix for um, surpluses that were not, have not been absorbed into the economy in other ways. So people and land and money capital, and the state's capacity to organize those other factors of production. So there's the development of the prison fix in the United States, in the UK, and in fact, all around the world, wherever inequality is deepest, prisons and policing are the most prevalent. The US being off the charts in that formulation. So what is the logic? The logic follows a number of different lines. One is the logic that proposes that the forces of organized violence will suppress the energies of people who have experienced organized abandonment, right? So they won't suppress everybody's energy, but they'll suppress enough. So that's one. So criminalization does a lot of really um, handy work there. Two, the logic enables people who uh, seek state power running on a manifesto 
that proposes that state power is a bad thing, not a good thing, can then wield state power uh, in a variety of ways while pretending, and perhaps to themselves truthfully, staying true to their mission of shrinking the state, but the state doesn't shrink. So whether it's a matter of privatizing prisons, which is the case in the UK, but not in the US, or privatizing many, many public services, which is the case in both countries and many other places, we see this process laying out. And what criminalization does there, as the whatever we think of it, the welfare state itself shrinks and shreds, is that criminalization provides another barrier or border or cage to keep people out of eligibility for public goods. And in thinking these things together, I just want to p- bring up another, another concept that Dahlia introduced to our conversation that's really crucial, and that is the question of class composition. And that, in a way, what, what this book, Abolition Geography, is about is me, sometimes with others, thinking over more than 30 years about class composition. That's what it's about. How, as Stuart Hall and his comrades argued in Policing the Crisis, that if we don't take seriously the reconfiguration of class and what it is composed of, we will at our peril yield to things like the persuasiveness of criminalization and the production of moral panics and so forth. And now thinking about the possibilities for political mobilizations across many different fronts. Essentially, or urgently, I guess, what I think is that we must take seriously that what Dahlia is talking about and what I am talking about are not things that come together just occasionally in a verso conversation, but rather must come together in how we conceptualize campaigns whether about housing, about migration, about roads, about transportation, and especially taking into account that when we talk about racial capitalism, we're not only talking about capitalism that's run by white people. We're talking about capitalism on the entire planet and how this differentiation constantly produces group vulnerabilities to premature death. Dahlia, I would like to know more about, through your work, what that kind of organized abandonment, what that exposure of people to premature death, what that vulnerabilization looks like. Because, you know, through the the, the discipline, the field of, of geography, it like allows us to you know, pay real close attention to how places are made and remade in a way that that guarantees that kind of exposure? Mm, I think that what's so integral here, because I think this is where Ruthie's work has been so essential um, to me thinking through, like, what are these platforms doing and how are they reconfiguring and recomposing class through and alongside, you know, the tools of racial capitalism? And for me, what these platforms are really doing is very much becoming the vectors through which 
particular labouring populations, and these are surplus populations that are typically the ones that are at the moment turning to these labour forms, it is essentially turning them into the shock absorbers of our broken cities. What these platforms promise is, you know, these kind of lean models of, you know, convenience, of speed, of anything you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. And in doing so, platform workers are exposed to multiple forms of risk. So geography and scale here is really important because what you have is the ability to explode interactions to such a degree to expand the number of interactions that workers have to go through every day to such a degree that necessarily risk multiplies as a result. Different forms of risk, such as, you know, the risk of conflict, the risk of misunderstanding, the risk that the body absorbs by having to work for so many hours in order to make ends meet because wages are getting lower and lower. And yet it deprives workers of the very ability, the very resources to actually deal and cope with those risks. So it denies them, you know, sick pay. It denies them a pension. It denies them the ability to rest. It denies them the ability to, you know, claim restitution when they are unfairly dismissed, for example, to claim compensation through the typical mechanisms that would be afforded to a worker. So that kind of the ways in which workers are exposed to risk here is done in such a a kind of duplicitous way because at the same time as multiplying the kinds of risk that workers are, are exposed to, these platforms claim to remove risk from the entire process. So, you know, you are provided with, you know, in one of the sectors that I look at in domestic work and kind of the deployment of platforms in domestic work, there's this promise that, you know, risk is removed from the process because data-driven analytics allows you to kind of know what will happen, know exactly what kind of worker you are quote-unquote, ordering, and that is literally how it is packaged, that you can determine the qualitative qualities by which you can, you know, tailor a particular care worker experience. And so the promise there is that it's so safe, it's so trustworthy, it's so free of risk, it's free of misunderstanding, it's free of potential conflict. But in reality, it is the workers that are both having to intensify their labour in order to provide the appearance of that seamlessness and that frictionless infrastructure, whilst also absorbing the excess forms of shock that are produced by the very kind of system that claims to be able to give you whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want it. But I think that concept of the devolution of risk through these models, through making particular promises of frictionlessness and flexibility the distribution of that is 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 heavily racialized and very uneven as well. That was that was so great. And you used a word that I was going to add, but you added it yourself. And that is the devolution of risk is, you know, an essential part of this conversation. One of the um, conundrums that I've been trying to figure my way through in in conversations and campaigns with comrades in different parts of the world, not just here in the U.S. has been the problem of how to confront the sort of secular movement toward devolution of many, many, many things. So Dahlia just um, explained so brilliantly, you know, how platforms work in this regard. 
And we can also see in a variety of other situations how, as my old friend Alan Feldman put it, how arrest is the political art of individualizing disorder. So that is a form of devolution, individualizing disorder. But more generally, to think about how difficult it is to mount campaigns by, say, workers who are driving for Uber or babysitting for Rishi Sunak's wife's firm or so on and so forth, where to, you know, direct attention and raise their fist, right? How to, how to combine and then to do that. And I just read an actually really interesting book that's coming out from Princeton University Press by three geographers, Katie Wells, Kafui Otto, and Declan Cullen, about uh, Uber drivers in Washington, D.C. And the concept that they have developed in their work is just-in-place labor, which I think is really fantastic. And one of the things that they, or, or a couple of the things that they come across, and I'd be really interested to hear what Dalia has to say about this, are one, that contrary to the intention of the platform companies, who are basically licensing the use of the platform and extracting rents from the drivers, the drivers actually wind up waiting, especially when they work the airports, waiting in the same area. They get to know each other, and the possibility for solidarity and building towards campaigns becomes enlivened. And, and I think about Wages for Housework campaign and Black Women for Wages for Housework, trying to figure out years ago, before you know all of these platforms were available, how to organize people whose work is so atomized whether they're paid house workers or unpaid, you know, primary social caregivers and so forth. So there's that question. And then the, another question that they raise in the book that I'd love to hear Dahlia talk about is how for many marginalized communities, communities of color, platform rideshare programs cure the problem of official taxi services refusing to carry people between certain neighborhoods. It actually enhances mobility. And that was a big selling point for Uber getting a certain special deal with the District of Columbia government that Washington, D.C. is a mostly black city, getting the government to agree to give them, you know, a, a special deal to, to operate there. So, there are those complexities as well, you know, how to organize and then how to disorganize people who become disorganized by the fact of the platforms or by the idea that somehow crime is the problem that everybody faces and therefore policing and problems are the solution to it. I'd love to talk for a moment about those certain communities, right? Because as you talk about it, that kind of carceral geography is, of course, about prisons, but it's also about what prisons do to communities like how they totally remake places and how that can kind of challenge our I guess common conceptions of what harm is and how it takes place and where it takes place right because if prisons are supposed to be the solution the one-stop shop solution to all harm what do we do with this devolved risk when you actually see it in action and the violence that it does yeah, I mean, I actually, I really love that, Ruthie, that you brought up this idea of 
you know, place and workplaces, because I think this has been really interesting for me, because I think typically, you know, when we think about the Marxist feminist struggles for, you know, wages for housework, it was typically always seen as this like marginalized sort of form of organizing that, you know, you have the general notion of what it means to do union or workplace organizing, where you have this very unified idea of place, you have this unified idea of working time. The idea of whether or not this is work and these are workers is not problematized. Whereas, you know, wages for housework really threw into sharp relief that these are for many different forms of work. This is these concepts cannot be taken for granted. The idea of, you know, what working time is, of what the worker is, of where the workplace is, these are very conceptually uneven concepts. And I think what's happening now is that much more so than what's happening now is that those confrontations and those those, those contradictions that the Wages for Housework campaigned threw up are now incredibly relevant for huge numbers of the workforce, not just houseworkers. Because what you have with, you know, a lot of platform workers and this whole idea that, you know, organizing Whereas typically before you would have, you know, a shop steward or not before, but in a lot of workplaces now still, you would have a shop steward who would build relationships in the fit in the workplace and go from there. You now have this odd situation where the places in which workers connect are actually the places that kind of happen in between where the work happens, especially because workplaces are not you know, what is the workplace for a babysitter, you know, an app-based babysitter? What is the workplace for an Uber driver or a courier? Where where the connections are being made, and, you know, my experience particularly doing union work, it's in the mosques. It's in the, you know, parks where nannies take the children in order to, you know, have someone to talk to and also give the kids something to do. It's in the airport car parks. It's in the kind of hot spots where workers wait for for jobs. It's in these spaces in between and the times in between that actually a lot of this important connection is taking place. And in many ways, the organizational and conceptual tools that Wages for Housework and Feminist Marxists have given us historically, I think, are becoming more generalizable to bigger swathes of the workforce. And especially this concept, actually, of also what a worker is. Because wages for housework often also try to move through this contradiction of how to think of something like motherhood as being work, which, you know, necessarily, you know, not not every mother thinks of themselves, you know, in those terms and would think of themselves in that way. That's the same that you will often get as well with platform workers because of this language of, you know, you're your own boss, you're an entrepreneur. And in many ways, there's a salience to that. I don't think it's completely speaking to nothing. I think a lot of the workers that I speak to and have done casework with do talk about, you know, feeling a sense of relief from the human boss. And so do feel a kind of attachment to that, even if they can also hold in contradiction the fact that the algorithmic boss is, you know, more punitive and more ruthless and cannot be bargained with in a way that, you know, sometimes very rarely, occasionally a human boss can be. Those concepts that have been at the heart of a lot of, you know, institutionalized union work, particularly I'm thinking, you know, in Britain that has historically excluded, you know, women workers and racialized workers. Those are becoming the essential organizing principles, I think, for the labor movement going forward. I think that's 
That is so true. And here I'll, I'll loop Eleanor's question because it's a fantastic question and brings to the fore another sort of consistency of how we ought to look at organizing, as Dahlia was just saying, and thinking about our relations among one another to the state, to capital, and to the future. And thinking in particular about how a a lot of the kind of insights from wages for housework, in my case, it was mostly from Selma James and Margaret Prescott and Wilmette Brown and Andaye. I mean, those were those were my particular mentors in 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 this learning and political work influenced how I wound up thinking about and writing about and highlighting the work in my first book done by Mothers Reclaiming Our Children. And I didn't do work with them in order to write about it. I was a dropout and a political organizer at the time that I was most intensely working with them at the same time that um, in developing relationships, especially with Margaret Prescott, um, some things became visible that otherwise were kind of invisible. And that's the whole point of people like me and Dahlia and this podcast existing. So people can see things that they're in but can't necessarily feel. And certainly, you know, there's an entire area of thinking and organizing that goes under the rubric abolition that is very much attuned to thinking about and working with people and learning from people who who figure out how to reduce harm, right? Whether they're nominal, you know, eponymously the Harm Reduction Coalition or small organizations of frequently women who look out for people who are vulnerable to domestic and interpersonal violence or, you know, larger, you know, campaign organizing people, that harm is very much at the center of the agenda that abolition exists to work through. So abolition, rather than being a group of people who say, oh, it doesn't matter that somebody hurt somebody, we're just against prisons, is saying, what about the various forms of harm that arise because of organized abandonment, whether that becomes expressed in interpersonal terms or in terms of you know, resource deprivation, whether money or other kinds of resources, or climate or war, forced migration, you know, all of these things. They're all forms of harm that abolition takes very seriously. And I think that some of the people nowadays who are doing really fantastic uh, work, you know, bringing together, as it were, a theoretical body of of knowledge are people who are who are writing on social reproduction, like Gargi Bhattacharya, Titi Bhattacharya, uh, Lise Vogel, Cindy Katz, Sue Ferguson, and so forth. That that their work is, I think, building. What we keep finding is that abolition and social reproduction are saying the same thing. And it's not a matter of a failure to have cited one another at some point, but rather that, to go back to a word that you used early on, Eleanor, the conjuncture, the kind of cascade of conjunctures that formed us politically and intellectually and analytically, you know, 
keep on pushing us toward the same constellation of concerns and the same urgency for the possibilities of organizing. I'm really interested in the symmetry between the idea of the criminal and the idea of the robot or the machine as these kind of racialized imaginaries that help do the kind of quite extreme work of helping like a general sense of us, like a public, forget or ignore what would otherwise seem to be like very obvious forms of harm. It like produces distance from the human. Dahlia, I would love for you to weigh in on that. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of my favourite sort of writers of all time, um, Noelle Saadawi, she once talked about the work of creativity as connection making. And I think that this idea of drawing these connections and making them visible, I think it ties in with the, the question of conjuncture. And that also ties in with the work that Stuart Hall does on articulation and what we're trying to kind of do here. And I think for me, that connection between, you know, the machine and the criminal and the ways in which the workers that I've worked with have at different points talked about feeling like one or the other. One thing when I was working as a caseworker, which I still do for unions that represent Uber drivers, one thing that I find really interesting is like how when you have been deemed, you know, guilty by an algorithmic system and therefore expelled from the means by which you work, the means by which you get a albeit meager wage. They then come to the union, they come to us, but that union is not formally recognized in the way that other unions are. But still we try and put forward all of these different processes of trying to kind of restore the human in the kind of like the conversation that's happening. And yet it has to happen in such it, it happens in ways that feel so uncomfortable. You know, one thing that we have, for example, is there are these processes of like probation and, you know, character reference and various things that go into the process by which you bargain in order to try and get someone what Uber will call reactivated onto a platform. So that will entail, you know, they have this, this category of this idea of someone being a fit and proper person to hold a license. And so my job as a caseworker is to write a letter to talk about why this person is a fit and proper person. And that involves not only trying to comment on the broader goodness of this human being, but also, you know, to also try and cultivate sympathy, you know, to say the impact of this has been that, you know, he's lost his livelihood, he has three children, he did And it's all of these processes by which, you know, there's something in that that makes, that felt very much like a process of, you know, defending someone's case. And do you know what I mean in terms of like a, in terms of how the kind of, yeah, like the, those processes of probation and character referencing that is so, in order just for someone to be able to continue the work that they rely on, you know, for their livelihood. There was something about that that just felt so adjacent and intersecting with the ways in which people are, for other reasons, written off, you know, or contained and, and in, particular, in particular ways. And I think that for me, that is so intersectional as well with the ways in which a lot of workers speak to me as 
feeling like they are being folded into the machine and feeling like this idea of this immediacy between tapping a button and having someone turn up at your door and that person is doesn't have access to sick pay, doesn't have access to pensions, doesn't have access to these rights that are to an extent humanizing because they recognize the social and embodied needs of a person, that that facilitates the kind of conceptual folding into being like a machine. And so I think for, for me, those kind of connections are, are so salient and came through in such a particular way when trying to essentially beg for someone to get their job back by going through all of these very bizarre character referencing processes. Um, I was just going to I was just going to build from 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 Dahlia's point and say that um, it's probably fairly obvious to people who are listening to our conversation that every single sort of dynamic that Dahlia described that workers who have been algorithmically excluded from being able to use the platform for their daily living is quite identical to what it takes to either stay out of prison or get out of prison. And I, and I just want to remind people at this point that criminalization doesn't always result in being locked up and that all of the other exclusions that criminalization produces are, are exclusions that, as Dahlia just so eloquently described, are exclusions that enhance the likelihood that people will suffer differentiated vulnerability to premature death that they, their communities, and so forth. The entire requirement to narrate an innocence in order to get out of prison or get back on the platform or stay out of prison or get into the platform is culturally so powerful now that people are looking for a category that will shelter those who are, are, are vulnerable from the storms of organized abandonment. And innocence is something that has popped up as a shelter. And it's so completely unreliable. It's, it's unreliable because the rules through which innocence may be asserted or ascribed are rules that change regularly. And some people listening will say, ah, but Gilmore, if, you know, somebody hits somebody else, they really did it. And it's like, yes, they really did it. I'm not pretending they didn't. The rules still change. The rules change, and that matters. And the other thing I, I wanted to connect to our conversation here is what criminalization, and particularly detention, prison, or other uh, spatially distinct forms of enclosure, like having an ankle shackle on and being required to stay in your home. What, what that has to do with uh, platform employment life has everything to do with what is so effectively monetized, whether by the state or by the state's proxy actors, you know, the private contractors, or by Uber or Lyft or whomever, or Rishi Sunak's partners platform. I can't say it enough. And that is, it's the monetization of time. That what, what people who are locked up or locked out of being able to move through their lives experience is that their time is extracted from them, like it was oil or lithium or cobalt, and that that 
the time becomes monetized so that prison guard or a tech person can get their salary and so that the entire system that extracting time from the drivers or whoever is waiting depends on can reproduce itself. So it is the monetization of time. So as I, as I think I wrote in one of the chapters in Abolition Geography, that perhaps if we think about the body as kind of a fundamental scale of geography, which is to say of writing the world, then we might not be as surprised as otherwise we would be that Marx's prediction of the annihilation of space by time has come true in these ways, you know, for a platform worker, for somebody who's criminalized, for somebody who's detained. So I thought that that would, you know, articulate, as it were, what Dahlia has been talking about and what I've been talking about. There's this deep connection between the idea of freedom and the idea of time in a lot of ways in which we talk about freedom, right? And freedom is is precisely what is promised in many ways by both the platform and the prison in their different iterations, right? We're building an overall society of safety and freedom and whatnot that is underwritten by these different institutions. And wondering, Dahlia, what from your from your research, from your organizing like how are people who are within the grip of these platforms, who are the workers within the grip of these platforms, conceptualizing of their own freedom, conceptualizing of their own time? I mean, I think that they are super aware of like the like I said, you know, there's a there's a kind of ambivalence and contradiction there of like, on the one hand, I am very fully aware that I am not my own boss, as I'm being told. But at least with this form of work, I can, you know, take 15 minutes here to drive my kids to school. I can take 20 minutes here to, to, you know, take my wife to the supermarket, you know, and kind of do these things that allow some kind of reclamation of time, but in a very limited sense. I think that the question, though, of of innocence, you know, I'm just going to come back to this because I think it's so integral because it is in many ways the fundamental contradiction that so many of our movements are often bound by, that, so that, that we tend to get cornered into. Um, and this kind of, and, and ultimately that this category of innocence is a poison chalice because you are never, like the bar of innocence, particularly for these particular groups, is so, is not only always changing, it is designed so that it can never be fully met. You know, one thing that I that I think of how kind of like, Innocence is the governing mechanism by which so many of these very punitive algorithmic management processes happen, is that they demand behaviours and responses that are not actually possible. I'm thinking particularly of one worker that I did casework for, this was a, a nanny though, where she, you know, was taking care of three children under the age of five that she'd never met before. So she was an on-demand nanny, went over, she was told that it would be two, but the profile hadn't been updated. So it was three children under five. Guess how that ended up <laughs> having to take care of you know, three kids under five that you've never met. Of course, you know, a vase was broken. Uh, you know, the children were obviously, as they often are, in heightened emotional states when they're left with a new caregiver. You don't have that, like, that, that long relationship that is often built where caregivers can understand, okay, you know, what kind of things does 
how does the child feel safe? How, what kind of things do they respond to? How do you help a child, you know, climb down from, you know, a state of anxiety or whatever? And obviously, you know, this then gets coded as, well, you allowed, you know, a broken vase to happen on your watch. When I came back, one of the children was crying. One of them had, you know, the, the kitchen had been messed up. And it's like creating a situation where something is inevitably going to happen and then admonishing the worker for not meeting this impossible threshold of, of innocence. Similarly, you know, when doing casework for Uber drivers where it would be like, oh, you know, he's been deactivated because a customer said that he shouted at them. And I'm kind of like, well, if I was working for 10 hours and then a customer got in my car and started <laughs> being obnoxious to me, I'd probably shout too. <laughs> um, you know, and so it's this question of... The, and I think increasingly there is a sense of design to fail. You know, we are designed to, it is designed for us to fail these processes or these bars of, of innocence and guilt and that our longevity and our ability to rely and build lives, you know, that feel rooted in, you know, a sense of predictability and a sense of, you know, I know that I'm going to be able to pay off the debt of this car, that these kind of things are, are frequently understood to be essentially impossible. And I think that for our movements, it always feels like claiming innocent. And I'm increasingly think this is also increasingly relevant for the heinous policy towards refugees and migrants that is unfolding in the British state right now, where again, you know, even like, you know, the, the migrants' rights movement in this country, I think, had often been complicit in the division between innocent and guilty migrants and kind of upholding refugees as innocent and, you know, saying that kind of economic migrants are not innocent or are, you know, that trying to create these, these moral separations between different categories of migrants. And obviously what we're seeing now is the end logic of that, which is no one can meet the bar of innocence to be able to flee or to be able to settle or to be able to move and um, to have the right to move, which should be an inalienable right of everyone. And so I think that really being able to not try and default on innocence and claiming innocence as a kind of shortcut to the difficulty of organising in this moment is important, but really challenging because so much of the terms of legibility to, you know, states and funders and whatever is so premised on that category of innocence or perfect victimhood. And that, for me, is the thing that the abolition movement really is really has always been able to kind of grapple with that contradiction because it's been so at the sharp edge of this idea of the division between innocence and guilt. And that's why the abolition movement is so is, again, giving us so many of the tools to fight and struggle in spaces that aren't specifically the prison. You know, it's a kind of we're able to kind of generalize and be very much empowered by the tools, the conceptual, the organizational tools that abolitionism has given us. Ruthie, I would love to know more about that process of developing those conceptual tools. Like what is it like or what has it been like to both study and participate in organizing against prisons and against carcerality and you know, combating this idea of that that innocence is something that will deliver the individual at least from this kind of conceptual and economic trap laid for us all. Wow. Um, so I wrote a book about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and I, I say that 
laughing, but also seriously, that 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 this book, Abolition Geography, collects work that I started writing in January of 1989, like 1989. And so I had been doing all these things before, and then I started writing that that piece. So, you know, the Berlin Wall was still up, Mandela was still in prison. I mean, it was it was quite different in 1989. But over time, what I and my comrades, and I include the two of you in that in that group, my comrades, have done is to notice what people do and consider how what we are bringing to the moment, whether it's let's stop this prison or justice for so-and-so or what have you, how what we're bringing to the moment of encounter resonates with what already bites into their existence, right? What already bites into their existence. I got that phrase from Stuart Hall. I don't know where he got it, but I love it. You know, what just like hurts and holds, right? This is a kind of a story about encountering various sorts of theoretical interventions as well as becoming better and better at noticing things. So many years ago when Kwame Ture was kind of conceptualizing the Black Power and the Black Power movement in the United States, I think when he was still known by his former name, he said, look, Marx and Engels didn't invent communism. They observed it. They noticed it. And they wrote something about it. And that is an example of what I'm talking about, of noticing and observing. And then another way to put this together is thinking with C.L.R. James, who obviously profoundly influenced Selma James, who then made her own path. But C.L.R. said in a, in a lecture in, I think, 1960 or 61 in, in Port of Spain, just to a community group, he said, you know, Revolutions happen because people are so conservative. They wait, they wait, he said, kind of riffing on Trotsky, and try every little thing until one day they come out in the streets and clear up in the matter of years the disorder of centuries. And it's that wait and wait and try every little thing that that I and everybody who I get excited about working with, whatever it is they're doing, take seriously, which is not to say I will romanticize every little thing or I will yield my vision or my politics to every little thing, but just to take seriously. People are doing this. Why does it matter? And how can this become part of the popular front, if not a truly united front, toward liberation from racial capitalism. So I'll I'll give a very particular example of somebody who I think is a good noticer, not noticing. And I've I've talked about him before. I've never met him, and I admire his work. Owen Hatherly, who writes about architecture and urban planning, he's got a really good book called Red Metropolis and, and other books. And his book I like the best is Militant Modernism. 
he wrote before he did his PhD. It's a fantastic book. Anyway, Owen Hatherley talks about in the days when Corbynism was very vibrant in the Labor Party, that he went to the whatever meeting, big meeting that they had, and I guess momentum, had a lot of momentum going. And after going to some plenaries, he went off to where the breakout groups were forming to talk about specific items on the manifesto, all right? So he said, I went to the housing room and there were like six people there. It was not enough people to have a meeting. And then coming back, I looked into the abolition room and it was packed. People were hanging from the ceiling. And I thought to myself, there will never be prison abolition, even if Diane Abbott became home secretary or PM or something. This is before Abbott's recent disgrace. And I thought, dude, you look at the world. Why didn't you walk in there and see what they were talking about? Because in there, what people were talking about includes issues that have everything to do with housing, everything to do with housing. It's not apart from housing. It's about housing. And it was so interesting to me. So this is not a like personal slam on Owen Hatherley, but it's, it's such a good example of what noticing can bring about, right? What observing what people are actually doing can bring about, not necessarily always fruitfully, but frequently can give us some ideas about what to do next. And and I was thinking also, for example, about platforms. And some years ago, a bunch of us were having a debate about platforms. And, and since, you know, the Bay Area of the United States is known for, you know, having spewed so many platforms out into the world, a person from the Bay Area was without reservation condemning and dismissing every aspect of platformization possible. And then finally, one of my comrades said, well, you know, maybe what's wrong with platforms is not that they exist, but rather that the people who use them don't own them, that they extract rents from their users rather than enable their users to live these lives in which they can take their kids to school and take their mom grocery shopping and, and have some kind of sense of freedom. So that conversation conflict was another way to think about noticing the various aspects of what it is we're fighting about and fighting through and thinking in really concentrated ways about how, as Dahlia said earlier, these narrations of victimhood, which uh, so saturate so many of our movements, are perhaps opposite to the stories we ought to be looking for and telling, which are not stories of heroism, but stories of history's protagonists. Like, what if we started from the assumption that none of us is outside of history, nobody is outside of history, and then thinking about the protagonists who are making freedom by making place or struggling for freedom in order to make place and going from there. And I think that, you know, I've learned so much today listening to Dahlia and talking with the two of you about more things that we can notice and articulate which is to say connect and express. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm, likewise, I'm compelled by the way you express in this 
really clear-eyed and simple way that prisons are class war. There we have it, right? And the idea of your work as this attention to the changing nature of class composition. So I'm kind of really curious about, I guess, what it's like building those links of solidarity between criminalized people and people who in different ways understand prisons to be something that protects them. That's a that's a really good question, and I'm not exactly dodging it, but I'm going to give a different <laughs> answer to perhaps the one you might be looking for. And that is, while it is true that many people, probably my next door neighbor here, imagine that there is some protection function of prisons and police that cannot be denied because harm and violence do exist in our society. Most of the people with whom I organize and whose own organizations really inspire me are not starting from a position of, man, prisons are good, or man, prisons are okay. They're starting from any other position. And I think that probably that is the vast plurality, if not the majority of the people on the planet like all 8 billion, all right? So that, that's my first point. So then the next question is, so then what do we do? What do we do? And this goes back to the bites into your existence point. I can give some examples. I've done some political education work with a very large union of nurses here in the United States who also have a kind of global network of unions around the planet. I'm not sure how closely they're allied with the nurses in the UK who have been striking lately, but my expectation is there's something pretty profound there in terms of connection. And what this union, the National Nurses United, has been doing is, through their political education work, is trying to get as much clarity as they can about the various contradictions that combine to make nurses' frontline work so difficult on the job. So the various contradictions. So they're the obvious things. They don't have enough protective gear to wear. Their salaries are not good. Their schedules are bad. There's understaffing. So those are obvious things. Then there are things like who their employers are, whether they're working for multinationals or the massive non-for-profits, whether it's the NHS Trust in the UK or the university hospitals in the US that have international campuses, like the university hospitals. You can go to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Palermo, in, in Sicily, right? So whether they're working for them, what that structure is, and the difference between where they can fight to win a contract, you know, benefits and conditions of, of work, as against where their employer works in the world. And then, in addition, the fact that in the U.S., and this might be true in the, U, in the U.K., it's, it's true in many places, lots of people who work in nursing are themselves or the children of long-distance migrants, 
who are still involved in redistribution of money resources in the form of remittances. So there is a long distance experience that becomes then part of political understanding, whether or not they became nurses through any political understanding. And one of the things that's been so particularly interesting in this work is it is very common in the United States for households, extended households, to include both police and nurses because they're well-paid, secure work for people of modest to medium formal education and training. They're like really good jobs. So it's very, very common. And it, it seemed to me when I first started doing the political work that I was going to run up against a barrier in which I could not talk about police because house, that was not the case. Because all of the other stuff was so resonant that eventually in the uh, union's manifesto of 2022, they included the fact that huge amounts of the social wage get spent on policing instead of on making healthcare free, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we didn't approach, I didn't approach the nurses thinking, you all think cops are great, I'm going to convince you otherwise, but rather approach saying, here are all these contradictions, many of which you're already aware of, let's put all this together and see what we can come up with. And so we can see so many things, you know, playing out, including the fact that nurses are aware on the front lines of the kinds of harms, for example, that uh, children experience because they live in unsafe conditions because of poor air quality. So there was a famous case in the UK of a little girl named Ella who the courts found, or the coroner, I guess, found that Ella's death was produced by the fact that London did not regulate its air quality according to its own rules. Right. She doesn't bring Ella back, but it gives us you know, some insights into the kinds of difficulties that, that, that frontline healthcare workers face that then get to the questions of racialized infrastructure and the fact that Ella's family lived where they live near a very big roadway and not elsewhere. And then the fact that any child has to live in those conditions. And then we can sort of work through the kind of green, not green capitalism, but green agenda that abolition must embrace. And also in thinking about the nurses and thinking about the MST in Brazil and thinking about organizing in many parts of the world, we can see the red agenda, which is to say organized labor, organizing whatever their position in class composition and getting rid of the debilitating idea that there is some point of production that looks like a factory floor. There are factory floors when there are factory floors, and when there aren't, there aren't. And it's absurd to pretend that somehow what I'm saying is not Marxist because I'm talking about work and Dolly is talking about work that isn't at some mythologized point of production. And so those two things, the green and the red, then combine to insists that abolition must be international and that internationalism from below is something that I think has a lot of vibrancy these days. It's really difficult, 
but it's also, I think, happening. And we can, again, look at some of our comrades, especially people who are organizing either, as it were, quote, in the global South or among peoples who are representative of the vulnerabilities that push people from or have kept people in conditions of organized abandonment anywhere on the planet. I would love to hear from you, Dahlia, about that work, again, of of broaching connection and of barreling through the kind of many walls of ideological defense erected to kind of stop us from recognizing one another because you're working within uh, an area which is the subject of a lot of kind of nativist, put it that way, concerns about, you know, British jobs for British workers, you know, the Uber driver coded as and majority um, man of color versus the taxi driver, usually a white man, usually understood to have slightly better working conditions and all that underwritten by this sort of strange moral panic about safety in the city. Uh, How do you go about drawing those connections between these different experiences of work? Yeah, I think that there's so many different things here. I think when it comes to the particular racialized divisions of labor within, within workforces, specifically within the taxi economy in London, you know, and you see when kind of Uber first started, you see a lot of resistance from the black taxi union. And a lot of that is used a lot of very racialized language. So there was this idea of, you know, I, there's some sort of very horrendous quotes from some of the from the general secretary of the taxi driving union saying things like you know you don't know where these people have come from Uh, I think he compared getting into an uber as like getting into a tank of sharks uh, saying you know we haven't checked their criminal records etc etc and there was a sense of like in in responding to you know I can understandable fears around you know what's going to happen to our workforce, you know, now that this kind of like huge corporation is changing it so rapidly. And yet the instinct was to go to, well, we're not just going to try and remove the exploitative mechanisms of Uber. We're just going to try and remove Uber in its entirety, including its workers from our streets. But obviously what's happened now is that Uber has stayed and a lot of the management tools that were sharpened on the bodies of those racialized workers that, you know, through this language of, you know, Uber drivers being potential safety threats in varying ways, which has justified these very punitive algorithmic management techniques, those management techniques, you know, Uber's still there and those management techniques have been transferred to the black cab workforce. So there's this idea of like, solidarity from the beginning would have blunted the tools before they could have been sharpened, you know? Um, but I think that the the question of, uh, you know, some attachments to that may exist um, by people who may think that policing and prisons keep them safe, this is also something that we often come up with, particularly in Britain, where we have hate speech legislation and hate crimes. And there's often a desire to, you know, a young refugee girl was bullied essentially to death by white students in her classroom. And there was this big sense of, we want to lock those people up under hate crime legislation. This idea, this sort of bizarre idea that prisons can actually be a solution to racial hatred. And this kind of call for policing as an answer to social injustice can even sometimes happen 
women movements. But from what I find, I find that it doesn't actually take a lot of conversational steps to get through that initial block. And as you were talking, Ruthie, I sort of was dying inside because the I think the meeting that you were talking about was actually, so it was actually a, a, a broader festival that we put on. And that introduction of the abolition stream was actually by myself and my good friend, Becca. <laughs> uh, and we actually designed that, put that um, stream into our annual meeting, which was, you know, um, a festival that clustered a lot of different movements and people around the Corbyn moment. And it was took a lot to wrangle that in. You know, we received a huge amount of resistance because of this sense of it's going to be alienating, you know, it's not electable. And I realise that there's a very big difference between the public and the voting public when it comes to who the state's speaking to. And as you pointed out, you know, in the end, it ended up being one of the most successful and like streams that people really felt like they were hearing things that they hadn't heard about before. And yet there was still this idea amongst the people who were high up in kind of the more bureaucratic institutions of Corbynism, because Corbynism was a sort of mishmash of, you know, institutionalised factions and sort of the more grassroots factions. And amongst those institutionalised factions, there was a real fear of touching the question of policing. There was very little that Corbyn himself conceded on, but policing was a big area that was conceded on. And there was this sort of, it was articulated through this narrative of, Policing has been one of the social institutions that have been undermined by austerity and we will commit to refunding the police, right? And there was a sense of this was a necessary concession that had to be made because otherwise we would alienate the voting public. And what I found interesting was that after the loss in 2019, which was obviously a spectacular, and many of us, including me and my friend Becca, were trying to change that. <laughs> 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 and... Um, what I found so interesting was that after 2019, the great, you know, loss when Corbyn, you know, lost that election and there was this sort of period of reflection and mourning in a sense. And six months after, the biggest working class movement that was not only diverse in all of the different ways that we think of, but geographically diverse across the UK was taking to the streets, calling for defunding the police. You know, it was in a, a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter protests. And what I found so incredible about it was not only was it a huge demonstration, not only was it a multiracial working class movement, but it was even in the smallest little rural towns of England that you would have never thought that the call to defund the police would have touched. Even if it was like four or five people that came out with banners saying defund the police, that to me was just, it was, it was still the energy was there and it resonated. And so to me, that was a huge miscalculation of the Corbyn movement. It was again an example of the kind of institutionalized electoral left always being quite behind the streets in many ways. That, you know, they made this call that policing couldn't be touched. And six months after the defeat, people were flooding the streets calling for a defunding of the police. And I think the reason there has been this shift is because an increasing number of people are realising that they will never be innocent enough to have a home. They will never be innocent enough to have health care. They will never be innocent enough to breathe clean air. And that increasingly, that, that's where we are heading. And so I think a lot of the ways in which abolition confronts that idea of innocence as a barrier to entry for life 
for valued life is resonating hugely. And I think it's a huge miscalculation to kind of start on the defense, even if you might need a few conversations. You know, oftentimes when I'm speaking to when I'm speaking to workers, you sort of say, you know, they like I should be able to call the police and the police should be able to come and like deal with abusive passengers. And, you know, it often doesn't take that long to get to a kind of mutual agreement that that is not a sufficient response to the broader issue of like, why is this entire thing being organized in this way and how that gives rise to abusive passengers, exhausted workers, etc. And so, yeah, I think it's a huge miscarriage. It's a huge underestimation of the potential power that we can build around these questions to think that, you know, people's maybe immediate reaction to it is always going to be their only reaction, if that makes sense. When you are both talking about just this absolute no-go area on the part of certain people, often people who have the purse strings, right, of we can't possibly defund prisons, we can't possibly defund the police, I'm just thinking, wow, this is so expensive, right? So many resources flung at these forms of governance. And Ruthie, I was wondering what you think of, I guess, what an abolitionist perspective can can tell us in approaching those kinds of flows of resources as, you know, how power operates. What is the relationship between the state and capital Good question and a big one. So several things come to mind. The the first is that frequently, as Dahlia was just saying, the first reaction that people have to, for example, the revelation, here's the budget for your city or your county or your state or your parish, you know, whatever political unit you live in that, that pays for the police forces or prisons or jails, the first reaction is, well, that's what it costs, right? People, people are, are fairly unmoved by revelations of, oh, look at this enormous expense. And then the second thing that frequently happens is people will say, well, even if it could be different, how can anyone make it different? Because it is what is. You know, there's this kind of almost existential exhaustion <laughs> That that rolls in, and it's kind of like in the in the third round of of conversation, and it doesn't necessarily have to be three separate conversations, but 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 sort of three parts of of an encounter, where especially in the context of say working to stop a prison being built in a community, right, where whether in the UK or here or in Brazil, the big promise is, oh, it's going to bring jobs. And, you know, everybody in this community is going to be better if we put this city, which is a prison, in the community that'll have all of this economic activity, blah, blah, blah. So the, the next thing, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of proving that the, you know, incredible economic salubrious benefits of prisons don't actually flow to the people who wind up hosting the prison, by and large. That's not altogether true, but it's mostly true. Even that isn't a good enough argument. So then we just have to ask a different question, which is, what do you want? And then starting from what do you want, frequently 
opens people up to feeling not too shy to say, I want this. And no one ever says, I want a prison. No one ever says it. I mean, the city manager might say, we want a prison, but individuals you know, who are trying to hail into movement generally don't say that. They say other things. They say jobs, they say a future, they say many things. And then that opens the possibility of thinking about where budgets come from, where the social wage comes from, how, it's, how it circulates, why it matters, why, for example, a relatively rural community in California that desperately needed social housing learned that the only way they could get it was first approving a prison and then the social housing would somehow miraculously follow, which, of course, it wouldn't. It not only didn't, it wouldn't. It would never have. But this this was the argument. So thinking about housing, thinking about the things that people want, enable the possibility for people to, again, you know, seize what's biting into their existence and try to do something about it. The sort of the big picture of how much money resources goes into policing in prison is astonishing. If the United States police forces aggregated were a country, they would rank third in military spending. So it's like U.S. military, China military, and then U.S. police forces. And yet some of our, I'll say adversaries, who proclaim themselves to be on the left argue that the U.S. needs a half a million more cops before any amelioration of the sick and dying welfare state can happen. The cops first. then So they're police state socialists, which is, you know, gives me a headache because the last time police state socialists got into power, in fact, every time they get into power, things don't work out very well. But there, there's that, and that's like Harvard people. These are not like marginal left-wing nuts. These are people who have jobs at Harvard and, you know, benefits and big salaries and everything who, who claim to be for socialism. So there, there, there's that. So thinking about the amount of money resources and then the other, you know, kind of brick and mortar, et cetera, resources that go into policing and prisons as resources that we want to seize requires then, I think I'm summarizing here, requires then that people, that we help one another notice what the social wage is, right? What, where it comes from and how it circulates and how, you know, in the, in the case of of all of the dough that goes either to subsidize capitalism or to lock people up or to, you know, threaten people in the streets and so forth, or to allow for disasters like Grenfell, you know, all of that money, whether it's through neglect or through actual use of the forces of organized violence, is a wage that does not go into the pockets of all of the workers who produce everything in the world. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing to remember is that when it comes to the world of philanthropy and the, you know, vast NGOs that are, you know, sort of stuffed with 
the uh, resources that philanthropists hand around, that those resources are twice stolen wages. You know, they're stolen first because there's no tax, and then, and then stolen first from workers, and then second because they don't contribute to the tax coffers. And so philanthropy in this approximation is the private allocation of the stolen social wage. So we have public allocation and we have private allocation. So we have like these two big general um, categories to think about very specific campaigns through. And, you know, people are mounting those campaigns, whether it's trying to stop that mega prison in, up in north in the UK or get adequate transportation, you name it. That, that, that these are ways that, that people can think about the big and the small. So, Dahlia, when you come to these organizing spaces with what sounds like to some people in first proposition, like a, a negative proposal, right? Abolish things, roads must fall, that kind of thing. How would you go about explaining that as actually a constructive project, a, a project of placemaking and, and world building? Yeah, and I mean, I think Ruthie talks about that, you know, so instructive for so many of us when it comes to tackling this, this question. For me, the abolition of these infrastructures and institutions that deny us the ability to build the lives that we want to build is really about, it's not about negating space, it's about creating space. It's about creating the spaces and the means through which we can imagine and build otherwise. And for me, that's what is so powerful about this, this kind of conceptual framework is that to me, it is deeply constructive. And it is also saying that in order to build these particular worlds that we want to build, in order to begin to imagine what freedom could mean, we have to understand what is currently stopping us from doing that. And the concept of abolishing the prison in order to create freedom for all of us is also about understanding that so long as certain groups of people are pushed into certain conditions, so long as we accept and tolerate the suffering of certain groups of people under these rubrics, none of us can ever be free. And so for me, abolition is absolutely about creating rather than negating space. Ruthie, in abolition geography, you, you say freedom is a place. And I would love to hear more about that place, right? More about that kind of imaginative and constructive act of remaking the world. Well, it's, it's actually a more modest claim than uh, I've happily been given credit for, which is to say, maybe rather than thinking remaking the world, is to think about how people are already making the world, that abolition already exists in pieces and fits and starts, that people are doing things that create the possibilities for life to flourish in all different sorts of places all the time. And so, again, noticing that and figuring out how those activities, what I like to call life in rehearsal, can combine with other people whose ongoing effort is to make the world anew um, by making more of what they make already is essential to thinking that freedom is a place. So 
a young person who interviewed me last year said when she asked more or less that question, she was just like, you mean freedom is an actual physical place? And I know she had in her mind an address. And if I just shared the address, <laughs> yes. we could all Please, get into yeah. it, you know, <laughs> our, our modes of transportation <laughs> and arrive there rather than it's a process. So, you know, here I'm, um, you know, going to invoke my my old friend Vijay Prashad, who, who said in Darker Nations, the third world isn't a place, it's a project. And I kind of push back a little bit on that. I completely understand why he said that. It's because it's not a, an address we can get into a boat and go to. But the, that the project has got to be about placemaking. Because after all, that is the human condition. That our, you know, human environment relations, whatever they are, whether it's the built environment, the, you know, the rest of nature of which we are part and so forth, matters enormously. And we can see these things unfolding, whether we look at land occupations in Brazil and MST, housing occupations in many places, including, I mean, this amazing project I happened to visit in Cape Town last year, the Sissy Ghoul House, which was a hospital. And when the province that where Cape Town is closed the public hospital, the Security guards who had guarded the hospital went back in and started living there. And it is now home to a thousand people. And it's a thousand people who are, you know, governing themselves. I'm not an anarchist. They want resources from the state. And I believe in Soviets, which is to say self-governance. They're governing themselves. They have transformed parts of the hospital through pretty much sweat equity into what they need. The configuration of the living there is really various. And they're working with, among other people, a retired architect who, during his career, built hospitals and shopping malls to think about how this behemoth building could become what the people, the thousand people who live there, dream of making. So there, freedom is a place. The MST villages, freedom is a place. The Abafshali settlements, freedom is a place. The tiny organizations of people who do amazing intervention work, not to like remedy after domestic violence and interpersonal harm has happened, but to interrupt the vulnerability to those kinds of harms. They are making freedom a place. All of these are examples. And building that is, I think, what we're here to do. And there, I think, we will have to leave it. If you're listening to this, go make freedom wherever you are. No pressure. Ruthie, Dahlia, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. That was our show. Thank you for joining us to hear from the brilliant Dahlia Gabriel and Ruth Wilson-Gilmore on The Trap of Innocence and the futures that abolition can help us build. Next time, I'll be talking to Ben Miller and Amadeep Singh Dillon about bad gays, evil and complicated queer people from history and what their lives can tell us about the present. See you then. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.